This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, this is Amit Goyal. I'm so glad you joined us for this very important episode as part of the Critical Care Cardiology series. We get to learn all about biventricular shock and utilization of VA ECMO from interventional and critical care cardiologist and amazing educator, Dr. Ann Gage. In this discussion, co-chaired by Dr. Yoav Karpinschiff and led by Dr. Megan Burke. But friends, before we dive in, we are so honored to share this message from our very first Cardiator Scholar. The Cardiator Scholarship is meant to support extraordinary individuals with bright ideas which align with our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. We support our scholars with mentorship, funding, and sponsorship. Huge congratulations to our inaugural scholar, Dr. Katie Vaughn, and sincere thanks to her Cardiator's Mentorship Committee. Katie, the floor is yours. Hey, everyone. My name is Katie Vaughn, and I am a current Chief Medical Resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I am so excited to be speaking with you all about the CardioNerd Scholarship. But first, a little intro about me. I'm originally from upstate New York, outside of Rochester, and I went to the University of Rochester Medical School and now have been up in Boston for residency and chief residency for the past four years. For my chief role, I am primarily located at the West Roxbury VA, where I get to work with amazing residents from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston Medical Center, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. I spend my time at the VA teaching lots of morning reports and noon conferences for residents and medical students, attending as a hospitalist serving our nation's veterans, and spreading some good VA cheer with a team of other chiefs. I am currently applying for cardiology fellowship and am interested in pursuing a career in heart failure and transplant cardiology. Over the past several years, I have gained a strong interest and passion for medical education, and I love trying to figure out and plan a fun and exciting way to teach content that may seem intimidating, but anyone can really understand. I'm super excited for the opportunity to be one of the CardioNerd scholars to work with this incredible community of amazing physicians and educators. My project is called Devices in a Dash, a Mechanical Circulatory Support Curriculum. This project was inspired by my interest in mechanical circulatory support devices and the drive to create educational content that is approachable and applicable for internal medicine residents. I found that as a resident, I was eager and excited to learn more about these complex interventions but didn't know where to start. I am excited that through this project, I will be able to create educational material that will hopefully encourage and enable residents to be even more of an active member of the team, asking questions, learning and being curious, and caring for these complex patients. Specifically, Devices in a Dash includes a VA ECMO educational video curriculum that was created last year and will expand to include educational video content about the intraaortic balloon pump, impella, percutaneous RVAD, and durable LVAD. The curriculum will include basics of the devices, common indications and contraindications, logistical considerations, and common complications of the devices. I am also planning to create useful one-pagers that can be printed and used on the wards as reminders and refreshers for these devices. I am super excited about this project because I think it is a topic that many residents are eager to learn more about for their patients and because the devices are so cool and interesting. 
My goal is to foster an interest in these specialized patient situations and enable more residents to feel confident in helping to manage these patients. I am passionate about this educational content and feel strongly that a basic understanding will inspire others to learn more. I'm so fortunate to be joined by amazing mentors from Beth Israel, including Dr. Will Grandin, Dr. Dave Ferfaro, and Dr. Jason Matos, and I'm super excited to be connected with a whole mentorship committee from the CardioNerds community, including Dr. Ann Gage as chair, Dr. Jason Katz, Dr. Elliot Miller, and Dr. Natalie Tapascar to help guide and shape this project even further. I'm so thankful and excited for this opportunity and I'm eager to get going. Hopefully you'll be seeing more about Devices in a Dash soon. Thanks so much for listening. Congrats again, Katie. We are all so proud of you. And now, let's get on with the show. Time to get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Welcome back to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. My name is Yoav Karpinchev, and I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Penn and one of the co-chairs of this series. I am joined today by CardioNerds co-founder, Amit Goyal. Hey, Amit. Hey, Yoav. Our hearts have been fluttering with all that we have seen here in the Shulman Ward at the CardioNerds Medical Center. Most recently, we have covered LV failure and RV failure. But today, we will be discussing some of the sickest patients in our center, those patients in extremis or nearly there with biventricular failure and pulmonary involvement. In the process, we will go through the basics of VA ECMO in the management of cardiogenic shock. And we have a new cardioner joining rounds today. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-fellow, Dr. Megan Burke. Megan is a fourth-year cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. She completed her medical school at Temple University and her medicine residency at Penn. She's currently completing her master's in translational research and is passionate about hemodynamics and MCS. Next year, she'll be pursuing interventional cardiology at Penn. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, Yoav. I am very excited to be here. And one of the best things about being invited to be a cardio nerd is that I get to nerd out with a lot of people I admire in the field. And one of them is our guest today. So I'm honored to introduce our faculty expert, Dr. Ann Gage. Dr. Gage is originally from Dayton, Ohio. She completed her internal medicine residency at Vanderbilt University and then completed her cardiovascular medicine fellowship and a cardiac critical care fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. If that wasn't impressive enough, she then completed an interventional cardiology fellowship at the University Hospitals Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio, before joining the Cleveland Clinic faculty in 2018. Since 2020, she has been practicing at Centennial Heart in Nashville and is a national leader at the intersection of interventional cardiology and cardiac critical care. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gage. Thank you, Megan, Yoav, and Amit for the chance to join you for today's conversation. I'm a huge Cardio Nerds fan. Your work in transforming resident and fellow education is unparalleled, but as early career staff, you have also revolutionized educational opportunities for continuing my own medical education. I'm grateful for all of your work, and I hope to pay it back a little bit today. Wow, Dr. Cage, thank you so much for, for the very generous and kind words. And for our Cardiners friends, you are in for a real treat. I remember so clearly when I was walking down our CICU here at the Cleveland Clinic, when Dr. Gage was staffing the unit and she was giving uh, with a bunch of medical students and residents and fellows at the bedside, probably the best tutorial on VA ECMO that I had ever heard from the theoretical down to the very practical, including even how to crank the ECMO in the context of an emergency. But beyond learning about VA ECMO, Dr. Gage is just an absolute 
leader. And, you know, as an interventional fellow here at the Cleveland Clinic, my only disappointment with my training is that I don't get to train with Dr. Gage. And everyone, when we talk about you, we look up a little bit and we think to ourselves, like, that was a big loss for us. You've definitely left your mark and you are very much missed here. That's so kind. I appreciate those words. I miss everybody there every day. Cleveland is a heck of a place. Nashville luckily just has a little bit better weather. I can't I can't argue with you there. But uh, let's get on with the episode. Before we focus on mechanical support and biventricular failure, Dr. Gage, could you briefly walk us through the pathophysiology? What are some of the key hemodynamic disturbances that we have to keep in mind for these patients? Sure, those are great questions to start with. VA ECMO is utilized for severe refractory cardiogenic shock. This may be seen in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome, acute heart failure, myocarditis, refractory ventricular arrhythmias, severe infection, postcardiotomy with failure to wean from bypass, or with primary graft failure after heart transplantation. It is imperative to understand the baseline pathophysiology and hemodynamics of the patient in front of us. Our initial assessment of hemodynamics is the basis for our subsequent clinical decisions for all mechanical circulatory support. Obtaining and assessing a patient's hemodynamics and then coupling this with the knowledge of a given mechanical device's hemodynamic profile is the first step in the initiation of mechanical circulatory support. Let's take a patient with acute cardiogenic shock, say an acute anterior wall myocardial infarction from an LAD occlusion or acute myocarditis. In this situation, we expect our patient to have a high left ventricular end diastolic pressure, low stroke volume, and low ejection fraction. This leads to a decrease in cardiac output and increased systemic vascular resistance, or SVR. The cardiac power output should be low, and if the right ventricle is involved, the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, or PAPI, will also be decreased. These disturbances need to be quantified and in my opinion, this can only be achieved via right heart catheterization. It is important to realize various patient factors can modulate the expected hemodynamic disturbances as well as the patient's response to mechanical circulatory support. First, we should consider what were the LV characteristics prior to this insult? Is this a first event for a normal ventricle, or is the shock a gradual decompensation of a dilated and already impaired ventricle? In the latter example, neurohormonal adaptations are likely present and may mitigate or alter some of the expected hemodynamics. Additionally, the acuity of the presentation may affect the degree of LV recovery. In other words, if the ventricle before us suffered from a long-standing cardiomyopathy and is already remodeled, it is unlikely to expect significant recovery. A second consideration is, is the right ventricle involved? What is the pulmonary vascular resistance? It is only logical that our choice of support device will be different if it needs to do the job of the left ventricle, the right ventricle, or both. The third thing to consider is, is this a primary cardiac insult, or are there other systemic pathophysiologies to consider? In the acute myocarditis patient, for example, we may also have infection or sepsis. Fourth, are other metabolic factors present, such as an abnormal pH or a PaO2, which, if corrected, could improve the patient's hemodynamics? I would argue the first step in management of a patient with cardiogenic shock is twofold. There should be simultaneous acquisition of primary hemodynamic data, while at the same time, someone should be on the phone activating the shock team. They can interpret this data and develop an informed plan of care for the patient before us. Thanks, Dr. Gage. What an amazing approach to start to think about how we use the tools in our toolbox, i.e. mechanical circulatory support. We like to spend the majority of today talking about ECMO, but before we dive in, let's Take a moment to clear up the alphabet soup and define what ECMO actually is. ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, 
and is a temporary form of mechanical life support that usually comes in two flavors, vino arterial, or VA, and vino venous, or VV. VV ECMO supports extracorporeal gas exchange in the setting of acute respiratory failure, whereas VA ECMO provides circulatory support as well as extracorporeal gas exchange, making it unique among MCS devices. Dr. Gage, let's start with the basics. What are the basic components and configurations of an ECMO circuit, and how do they contribute to the hemodynamic support and gas exchange? As Joav mentioned, ECMO comes in two mechanistically distinct forms, veno-arterial or veno-venous. For today's discussion, I'm going to limit our discussion to veno-arterial ECMO. At the most basic level, ECMO is a machine that does the work of both the heart and the lungs. This means it supports the entire cardiac output and performs gas exchange. This allows for circulatory support as well as the normalization of the PCO2, the PO2, and the pH. When discussing ECMO, we talk about the circuit. You can think of this as the path traveled by a single red blood cell from the time it exits the body to its reentry into the arterial circulation. In a VA ECMO circuit, Deoxygenated blood is pulled from the venous circulation via a large bore cannula. The driving force for the flow of blood is a centrifugal pump. Blood passes through the pump into an oxygenator. Within the oxygenator, gas exchange occurs. Oxygen is delivered to venous blood and carbon dioxide is removed. Oxygenated blood then travels through another large bore cannula to be returned to the arterial circulation. The flow on the ECMO circuit is determined by the pump speed, which is measured in revolutions per minute the blood volume, and the resistance. So what does this machine look like? When learning ECMO terminology, I think it's helpful to think as if you are the ECMO circuit. You are the central hub housing the pump and the oxygenator, and each of your arms is a large bore cannula. Your left arm drains blood from the patient's venous system and can be referred to as the venous cannula or the inflow cannula. Your body represents the pump and the oxygenator. Your right arm represents the cannula delivering oxygenated blood to the arterial system of the body and is referred to as the arterial cannula or the outflow cannula. Inflow and outflow cannula can sometimes get a little confusing, but ECMO is an egotistical machine. It serves as the point of reference for describing the direction the blood is flowing. The next thing to think about is how is ECMO placed? Veno-arterial ECMO is placed either peripherally or centrally. This refers to the method by which the cannula are inserted and where they are placed. Peripherally inserted ECMO is placed percutaneously using the Seldinger technique, usually by an interventional cardiologist. Centrally cannulated ECMO requires anastomosis of the cannula to a blood vessel and is most frequently used in post-cardiotomy patients. It is usually placed by a cardiac surgeon. ECMO circuits have multiple possible configurations. In the most typical VA ECMO configuration, a venous inflow cannula is placed via the common femoral vein with the tip of the cannula in the IVC near the right atrium, and the arterial or outflow cannula is placed via the common femoral artery with the cannula tip in the descending aorta. This configuration is sometimes modified, so the point of entry of the venous cannula is the internal jugular, and the arterial cannula is in the axillary artery. It is also possible to have percutaneously placed left atrial VA ECMO. In this configuration, the venous inflow cannula enters the body via the common femoral vein. It then traverses the interatrial septum and is then placed with the tip in the left atrium. This is most commonly performed using the proprietary tandem heart system or with an Edwards cannula that has the ability to drain from both the left atrium and the right atrium. 
One other form of peripherally cannulated ECMO you may encounter is VAV ECMO. This configuration is utilized most frequently in patients with severe lung injury. A second return cannula is added post-oxygenator, such that the arterial blood returning to the body is split into two cannulas. With the additional cannula positioned in the right heart at the level of the tricuspid valve, providing supraoxygenated pulmonary blood flow. This avoids north-south or Harlequin syndrome, which we are going to discuss later. Centrally cannulated VA ECMO is placed by a cardiac surgeon via a sternotomy. In this configuration, the ECMO cannula are anastomosed, usually via a graft, to either the right atrium or the pulmonary artery for the venous cannula and the ascending aorta for the arterial cannula. Wow, Dr. Gage, that was amazing. I am sure that I don't speak for only myself when I say I wished I had that orientation to the ECMO circuit when I was a resident and fellow taking care of these patients. I think we all feel very overwhelmed walking into one of those rooms for the first time and without a really good understanding of what the patient is hooked up to. And I think the idea of the ECMO as an egotistical machine is so true and is certainly applicable to not just ECMO, but I think other forms of mechanical circulatory support and how we think about them. So that's really, really helpful. Now that we know what VA ECMO is and how it works, we need to understand when and for whom VA ECMO should be used. So let's start with a case from our CICU, aka the Shulman Ward. We are first going to see a 56-year-old construction worker who was on the job when he felt poorly, walked outside and complained to his brother that his chest hurt. He then collapsed, was unresponsive, pulseless, and CPR was started immediately. EMS was called and was on scene within 10 minutes. The initial rhythm was ventricular fibrillation, or VF, and he was shocked one time before achieving return of spontaneous circulation, or ROS. Before a 12-lead EKG could be obtained, he reverted back into VF. He then received epinephrine and was defibrillated twice more without success. A Lucas device, which is a mechanical compression device, was placed for continuous CPR and he was transported to the emergency department. On arrival, the resident asks whether we should activate the shock team to consider VA ECMO. The patient is clearly very sick, in extremis. Often the question of initiation of ECMO happens when a patient is decompensating or is actively getting CPR, which makes the decision often more difficult because you have to make a quick decision with sometimes little information. We had a full episode devoted to eCPR with Dr. Bartos from the University of Minnesota. But Dr. Gage, maybe you could walk us through how you evaluate whether a patient is appropriate for ECMO both in the circumstance of an arrest or acute decompensation, but also in general. Absolutely. Before we discuss the very ill patient in front of us, let's talk about some common indications and contraindications for venoarterial ECMO, as well as risk factors associated with worse outcomes in VA ECMO. As I mentioned earlier, VA ECMO is utilized for severe refractory cardiogenic shock. This can be the result of an acute coronary syndrome, acute heart failure, myocarditis, refractory ventricular arrhythmias, severe infection, postcardiotomy with failure to wean from bypass, or with primary graft failure after heart transplantation. Contraindications to initiation of VA ECMO can be divided into absolute contraindications and relative contraindications. These absolute and relative contraindications will vary between institutions, and I encourage listeners to familiarize themselves with the guidelines for patient selection at their institution. For me, absolute contraindications include severe aortic insufficiency and severe peripheral arterial disease. 
Increased afterload from the ECMO circuit exacerbates severe AI and increases the LV in diastolic volume and pressure, which can lead to worsening hypoxemic respiratory failure, decreased coronary perfusion, and a tendency towards LV stasis. For these reasons, severe AI is an absolute contraindication for me. In patients without postcardiotomy shock, ECMO is placed peripherally. If the patient does not have arterial access options for cannulation, this again would be an absolute contraindication. Additional contraindications may include unwitnessed cardiac arrest, severe irreversible brain damage, severe irreversible multisystem organ failure, advanced age, and bleeding abnormalities. Despite advances in ECMO technology and clinical expertise, only 40 to 50% of patients with refractory cardiogenic shock treated with VA ECMO are alive at hospital discharge. There are multiple pre-ECMO risk factors independently associated with poor outcomes. These include older age, female sex, and higher body mass index. Patients with markers of increased severity of illness, including laboratory evidence of end-organ dysfunction and longer duration of mechanical ventilation prior to the initiation of VA ECMO, are also independently associated with poor VA ECMO outcomes. We also know that underlying diagnosis impacts ECMO survival. Pre-ECMO cardiac arrest is associated with increased ECMO mortality, whereas acute myocarditis, heart transplant, refractory ventricular tachycardia, or fibrillation, have relatively lower mortality rates. In 2015, the ECMO SAVE, or Survival After Venoarterial ECMO, score was published. This is a scoring system including many of the factors I just described that may be useful in predicting survival for patients receiving VA ECMO. So how do I personally evaluate whether a patient is appropriate for ECMO? The first question I ask is, is there an obvious contraindication to the initiation of VA ECMO? If not, my next question is, does the patient have refractory cardiogenic shock requiring biventricular mechanical circulatory support? Ideally, there is hemodynamic data and an echocardiogram to inform this decision. I then ask myself, how urgently does the patient need support? If this is an urgent need, meaning I expect the patient to die or have an onset or worsening of multi-system organ dysfunction, if support is not initiated within minutes to a couple of hours, then ECMO is my preferred strategy for biventricular support. If time allows for utilization of intravenous vasodilators, such as nitroprusside and or initiation of inotropes with frequent reassessment of hemodynamics, then I may prefer to avoid ECMO and initiate support with other devices, such as an axillary Impella 5.5 and a Protec Duo. I then ask what is the etiology of this patient's cardiogenic shock? I want to know how likely is it this shock is reversible. If not reversible, is ECMO going to be a bridge to durable mechanical circulatory support or to transplant? Knowing our potential exit strategies is a part of the process of ECMO initiation. I then review available labs to refine the risk score for this patient. Turning our attention to the patient Megan described, we have a 56-year-old male with unknown past medical history who suffered an out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillation arrest, who arrives to the ED with ongoing chest compressions after failure to achieve ROSC despite appropriate defibrillation. Based on the limited history, this patient likely has an acute coronary syndrome with refractory ischemia driving his ventricular arrhythmia. I agree with the astute resident. Activating the shock team is appropriate. Unfortunately, in the setting of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, data is limited. However, I still try to systematically approach these patients as best I can. So if we look at this patient, First, is there an obvious contraindication to the initiation of VA ECMO? From the data that's been provided, I do not think so. There will always be some uncertainty regarding downtime, quality of CPR, and potential for hypoxemic or anoxic brain injury. 
However, this gentleman had a witness arrest and received immediate bystander CPR. Next, does our patient have refractory cardiogenic shock requiring biventricular mechanical circulatory support? Well, refractory ventricular fibrillation causes cardiac standstill. This certainly fulfills my criteria for cardiogenic shock requiring mechanical circulatory support. Next, how urgently does this patient need support? Here, the patient needs support now. In this situation, peripherally cannulated ECMO can be placed quickly and will allow for rapid restoration of circulation, oxygenation, and ventilation. For our patient, it will also allow for what I think will be a potentially life-saving left heart catheterization. Thanks, Dr. Gage, for walking us through your thought process. I think it's really helpful to hear how an expert in the field walks themselves through all of this complex decision-making so that we can hopefully take better care of these patients in the future. I also think it's really important how you highlighted the shock team approach in the decision-making of these patients. And for our patient, fortunately, he was at a center where there is a shock team and the system is set up to initiate ECMO and mechanical circulatory support. So let's get more of the story on this patient and what happened. The ECMO team was activated on arrival. The Lucas device was maintained while the ECMO cannulas were placed via the left femoral artery and right femoral vein. The patient was heparinized and IV cangrelor was started. With successful cannulation, ECLS was initiated with flows to 4.5 liters per minute. The Lucas device was then removed and, as you mentioned, the patient went to the cath lab to receive what is hopefully a life-saving cardiac catheterization and coronary angiography was performed. The patient was then successfully defibrillated with one shock, resulting in a wide complex perfusing rhythm. Angiography demonstrated a proximal total occlusion of a dominant circumflex artery and mild LAD disease. The circumflex lesion was wired and balloon angioplasty was performed, resulting in Timmy tube flow. A drug-eluting stent was then successfully placed with a 0% residual and Timmy 3 flow. It seems that ECMO certainly helped us get this patient through his arrest and definitive revascularization as we expected. We are going to be starting therapeutic hypothermia, placing a pulmonary artery catheter, and obtaining a bedside echocardiogram before we move the patient to the ICU. Before we move the patient to the ICU from the cath lab, Dr. Gage, can you talk to us about why VA ECMO was an ideal MCS option in this case? Could you also review some of the complications that can be related to the access with these large bore catheters in place and especially how we maintain distal perfusion for this patient. Wow, Megan, this patient appears to have received excellent care from all of the providers at your institution. What a lucky guy. In this case, the patient has refractory ventricular fibrillation. VA ECMO is an ideal choice for this patient for three reasons. It provides full cardiac support as well as pulmonary support, and it can be rapidly deployed. Additionally, as already discussed by the CardioNerds team and Dr. Bartos earlier in the Cardiac Critical Care series, survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is dismal, widely reported at about 10%. We know that in the majority of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory ventricular arrhythmias, coronary artery disease is present. In these patients, VA ECMO provides cardiopulmonary support and may allow for definitive treatment of the underlying physiology. Simply put, it can buy enough time and hemodynamic stability to allow for a trip to the cath lab and for PCI. In the ARREST trial published in The Lancet in 2020, early ECMO-facilitated resuscitation for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest 
and refractory ventricular fibrillation significantly improved survival to hospital discharge compared with standard ACLS treatment. In this randomized single-center study, 15 patients were assigned to standard ACLS treatment and 15 patients were assigned to early ECMO-facilitated resuscitation. 7%, or one of these 15 patients in the ACLS group, survived to hospital discharge, compared to 43%, or 6 of 14 patients in the eCPR group. Acknowledging the limitations of this study, the data from the ARREST trial would suggest that our patients' likelihood of survival to hospital discharge was increased due to VA ECMO. Unfortunately, VA ECMO is not without its complications. ECMO cannulas range from 16 to 24 French, or up to 8 millimeters in diameter. Think about that for a second. 8 millimeters. That's a pretty big hole. As you would guess, access-related complications include bleeding and lemoschemia. Rates of bleeding complications are highly variable due to a lack of standardized definitions, but are reported to have a prevalence of 30 to 60%. Limb ischemia is reported to occur in up to 40% of patients with femoral cannulation for VA ECMO. Bleeding complications can be minimized with various cath lab techniques, such as ultrasound guidance, micropuncture access, and operator experience. In patients with femoral arterial cannulation, the risk of critical limb ischemia can be reduced via placement of a distal perfusion catheter. Distal perfusion catheters are used to direct a portion of the oxygenated blood from the ECMO circuit to the cannulated leg. If you were looking at a patient on ECMO, you would see a sheath, usually a six to eight French sheath, placed just distal to the large ECMO cannula. The sheath itself is placed in an antegrade fashion, meaning the direction of blood flow will be toward the foot instead of toward the aorta. The sidearm of the sheath is then wide into the arterial limb of the ECMO circuit. This provides oxygenated blood to the cannulated leg, which would otherwise be at risk for critical limb ischemia. Thanks, Dr. Gage. Now, we had started talking about this previously, but we really need to hammer home the physiology for ECMO to manage these patients. The venous cannula is going to drain blood from the systemic venous system and decrease the right-sided preload. And then the arterial cannula is going to return this blood retrograde into the aorta. And that's how you maintain systemic perfusion. Also, not all of the blood on the right side is going to be diverted into the ECMO cannula. Some blood is going to follow the normal route from the right side, through the lungs, to the left side, and out the aortic valve, if it can. So basically, our already weak left ventricle is going to try to pump out whatever blood is returning to the LV, but also has to overcome the afterload introduced by the flow from the arterial cannula. Dr. Gage, can you talk us through this physiology a little bit more? And can you highlight some of the consequences of increased afterload introduced by the ECMO circuit? Yoav, that was a really elegant summary of VA ECMO physiology. So what can I add? Repeat this over and over. ECMO increases LV afterload. ECMO increases LV afterload. In the face of increased afterload, blood accumulates in the left ventricle. This increases the LV in diastolic pressure, the left atrial pressure, and the pulmonary capillary pressure. In other words, all left-sided pressures will rise. These changes significantly increase myocardial oxygen demand and can worsen LV function. This is the exact physiology we hope to avoid in patients with acute cardiogenic shock, especially those with acute ischemic insults, such as acute myocardial ischemia or infarction. If the failing LV is unable to generate sufficient pressure in the face of this increased afterload, the aortic valve fails to open. The LV becomes distended, and stasis of blood 
with subsequent thrombosis can occur. Additionally, the rise in left-sided pressures can lead to worsening pulmonary edema and hypoxemic respiratory failure. Thanks, Dr. Gage. So our patient is getting set up in the CICU back from the cath lab, and we did get some more information. The PA catheter demonstrated a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 25 millimeters of mercury, PA pressure of 50 over 30, and a CVP of 15 while flowing at 4.5 liters. The bedside echo showed an ejection fraction of 10% with severe LV and RV hypokinesis, and the LV is moderately dilated. The aortic valve is opening intermittently, and there is spontaneous echo contrast seen in the LV. The chest x-ray, appeared to confirm PA positioning, also shows pulmonary edema. This patient is certainly demonstrating consequences and signs of LV distension and pulmonary edema that we just talked about. Dr. Gage, how do you identify patients who would benefit from LV unloading while they're on VA ECMO, and what are some of the strategies that we can utilize here? Protecting the left ventricle and the lungs from the deleterious effects of VA ECMO are fundamental components of VA ECMO management. When the pulmonary venous pressure is elevated, the patient is at risk for pulmonary edema. Strategies to avoid pulmonary edema, LV distension, and LV thrombosis are known as LV venting. These maneuvers attempt to lower left-sided pressures and volumes, further decompressing the left ventricle. Attempts to decompress the left ventricle may begin with pharmacologic interventions, such as intravenous afterload reductions and or the utilization of inotropes. If this fails, the most commonly encountered forms of LV venting include use of the intra-aortic balloon pump, insertion of a percutaneous LV to aorta ventricular assist device, such as the Impella CP, or an atrial septostomy, which allows for left-to-right shunting. Dr. Gage, I think you've made it clear to all of us that when it comes to ECMO, there's really no free lunch. And they have some choices that we can consider in terms of how we want to unload the ventricle and why unloading the ventricle is so important. So Dr. Gage, are there particular circumstances for when you would consider one particular LV vent strategy or another? And is there data that shows one strategy being particularly more effective than another? I know this is a really hot topic, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So let's begin with the data that we have. In a systematic review and meta-analysis of 62 studies, including nearly 8,000 patients published in 2019, left ventricular venting with the intraaortic balloon pump, impella, or other percutaneous or surgical techniques resulted in more successful weaning from venoarterial ECMO, as well as reduction of 30-day mortality, especially when LV venting was implemented in less than 12 hours from the initiation of VA ECMO. Based on this data and similar data from other meta-analyses, in the absence of prospective randomized data, I think that it is reasonable to consider LV unloading for appropriately selected patients undergoing VA ECMO. I personally have conflicting thoughts about LV venting. I do not believe it is necessary for all patients. However, the data supports early initiation of venting, and from a logistical and technical perspective, placement of an LV vent at the time of ECMO initiation is much easier than deciding to initiate venting hours to days after the deployment of ECMO. I pursue LV venting in ECMO patients if I see any of the following. Elevated left-sided filling pressures, pulmonary edema, evidence of LV distension or LV thrombus, or failure of the aortic valve to open on echocardiogram. Based on meta-analysis data, there was no heterogeneity in the association between LV unloading and decreased mortality in relation to the specific left ventricular unloading strategy. 
In other words, disassociation was present for both the IABP and the Impella. In my practice, I most commonly use an Impella CP for an LV vent, largely because the 3.5 liters per minute of cardiac output provided by the Impella CP is often a part of my weaning strategy. Uh, that was very helpful, Dr. Gage, and thanks for going over that. You know, VA ECMO, as we're hearing in this discussion, clearly provides essentially full cardiopulmonary support. But like Megan said earlier, there's no free lunch here. And if an uh, unloading strategy isn't activated at the time of VA ECMO insertion, we at the bedside are diligently looking for the hemodynamic parameters to suggest the need for LV unloading or venting. But can I ask you, what about in this particular context when the etiology is an MI, realizing that the data here is sparse, should we have maybe a lower threshold to unload the LV when we consider VA ECMO for patients in the context of myocardial infarction, thinking that not only the hemodynamic unloading, but also potentially to limit infarct size and the injury from the infarction itself? It's a great question, Amit. I don't think that we have data at this point to tell us for patients with acute myocardial infarctions also placed on VA ECMO, whether or not unloading of the left ventricle is beneficial. I think that the source of your question is some of the ongoing studies looking at LV unloading prior to percutaneous coronary intervention in the setting of acute myocardial infarction. There's certainly some data that is promising that we can decrease infarct size and improve outcomes in patients who undergo upfront unloading prior to percutaneous coronary intervention. But I don't know that that data can be extended to a, a patient who is also being supported on VA ECMO. I think the jury is still out there. Great. Thanks for that. So going back to our patient, when we arrived to the unit, we specifically placed a right radial arterial line as we wanted to monitor for North-South syndrome or Harlequin syndrome, as it's sometimes called. Dr. Gage, can you walk us through the physiology of this syndrome and why we use a right radial arterial line to monitor blood gases and pulse pressure for North-South syndrome? Thank you for this question, Yoav. The physiology of North-South syndrome is a personal favorite of mine. In a patient on VA ECMO, blood in the aorta can come from two sources. It can be from the arterial ECMO cannula, or it can come from the left ventricle. In fulminant cardiogenic shock, LV contractility and stroke volume are low, and the majority of the blood throughout the entire aorta is from the arterial ECMO cannula. As LV function improves, the blood in the aorta is a mixture of blood from the ECMO cannula and blood ejected from the left ventricle. The interface of these two sources of blood flow is known as the mixing cloud. With increasing LV contractility, the mixing cloud moves more distally in the aorta. In patients with normal lung function, blood ejected from the left ventricle is fully oxygenated. However, many ECMO patients have parenchymal lung injuries, which limit normal gas exchange. In this situation, the left ventricle may eject blood with a low PaO2. If LV contractility is high enough, the mixing cloud may occur distal to the takeoff of the cerebral vessels, meaning all of the blood flow to the coronary arteries, right upper extremity, and cerebral vessels comes from the LV and not the ECMO cannula. If this blood is relatively deoxygenated due to abnormal pulmonary gas exchange, upper body hypoxia can occur. This is known as North-South or Harlequin syndrome. Patients supported with VA ECMO should be monitored with an arterial line, ideally placed in the right arm 
exactly as you did in this patient. In this location, blood gas sampling is indicative of the oxygen content delivered to the coronaries and to the cerebral arteries. Additionally, the arterial line allows for monitoring of pulsatility, which is often used as a surrogate for cardiac contractility. If the arterial line tracing begins to show an increased pulse pressure and your ABG shows a decreased PaO2, this should raise concern for potential coronary and cerebral hypoxia. Dr. Gage, I'm so glad that you were able to explain the physiology of your personal favorite, Harlequin syndrome. I think it's something that is conceptually can be hard to understand, but is really important to think about. So as we're winding down, my takeaways as a learner, and I think what our audience should really remember is a few things that you've spoken about today. The first is that patient selection is clearly key for ECMO. Number two, that ECMO is not a tool for LV recovery, as we've learned from what we know about the basic physiology of the ECMO circuit. And three, that careful monitoring and thought risk must be given to the potential complications and adverse effects of what is intrinsic to the ECMO circuit. So now that we're nearing the end of our time, I want to circle back to our patient and discuss what I'm going to call the ECMO endgame. As we all discuss, I think we're all certainly cardio nerds, but maybe a few of us, myself included, are, are other kind of nerds too. So the patient was started on dobutamine and did have an intraaortic balloon pump placed with improvement in his pulsatility and filling pressures. He was then rewarmed according to protocol and amazingly regained consciousness with full neurologic recovery. It's really the best possible outcome we could hope for. So Dr. Gage, how do you think about weaning a patient from ECMO and what comes after for these patients? It's really wonderful to hear the outcome for your patient. I hope that everyone involved in his care was very proud of the care that was provided. The decision to begin weaning ECMO assumes you believe the patient has had enough myocardial recovery to meet the body's circulation and oxygen demands. Ideally, end organ dysfunction should be improved, recovering, or supported by other means, such as CRRT or mechanical ventilation, prior to beginning any attempts at weaning your ECMO support. Many protocols for weaning ECMO exist. However, no data supports the superiority of one strategy over another. So I guess I'll tell you what I do. For me, weaning ECMO relies on real-time assessment of invasive hemodynamics and echocardiography. ECMO flows are slowly decreased by a half to one liter per minute until ECMO support is only one to one and a half liters per minute. This increases the preload of the right heart and simulates the loading conditions the heart will face after decannulation. A successful wean is marked by acceptable filling pressures on your PA catheter, maintenance of a mean arterial pressure greater than 65 millimeters of mercury, a pulse pressure of greater than or equal to 30 millimeters of mercury, a pulmonary artery saturation of greater than 60%, and a cardiac index of 2.2 liters per minute or greater. On echo, there should be no left ventricular or right ventricular distension, no evidence of stasis, and the aortic VTI should be greater than 10 centimeters. If the hemodynamics and ECMO findings during the ECMO wean are acceptable, the patient should then undergo controlled decannulation in the operating room, where, if we were wrong, the patient could rapidly be placed back on ECMO. Thank you, Dr. Gage. We've covered a lot of ground here on the topic of ECMO. Do you have any final words of wisdom when it comes to caring for these patients? Caring for ECMO patients is an intellectual and emotional roller coaster. As the pathophysiology of cardiogenic shock plays out in front of you, 
ECMO gives you the ability to attempt to counteract the deleterious aspects of cardiogenic shock, often on a minute-to-minute basis. For cardio nerds who love cardiac critical care, the successes can be exceptionally rewarding. Learn from the frustrations and losses. This is what makes you a better physician the next time you care for a similar patient. Looking forward, I think the focus on pump failure and circulatory support for cardiogenic shock will only be one part of our management for these patients. Ask yourself questions as you take care of these patients in the CICU. There is a lot more to this story, and I believe our management of cardiogenic shock will evolve and mature significantly during all of our careers. Wow, Dr. Gage, this has been just absolutely fantastic. You said that ECMO is an intellectual and emotional roller coaster. I feel the same about this discussion, and I'll bring it full circle. I began by saying that that bedside teaching that you did on VA ECMO was probably one of the best I'd heard for hands-on teaching for that modality. But this episode is probably now my all-time favorite cardiac discussion. So thank you so much for your time in teaching us today. And you know, normally we end our episodes by asking our guests who explain what makes your heart flutter about taking care of the critically ill for the series, but I'd like to actually make this a little bit more personal and talk about family. In addition to blazing the trail for this new and exciting overlap field of interventional and critical care cardiology, you and your husband, electrophysiologist, Dr. Kyle Mansager, are brand new parents with baby Wells. A two-physician household is so challenging, I know from personal experience, we've got three boys, my wife is a NICU fellow. And you know, especially for entering into procedural fields, there are a lot of concerns around balancing the work and the life, the family and the personal and time for self-care and just how to how to do it all, essentially. I like what Dr. Anulala says is work-life harmony. So I'd love to hear from you how you strive for work-life harmony and what the journey has been like for you. Oh, man. Having a two-physician household with a young family is hard and it's tiring. During general fellowship, I was at a group dinner with Catherine Otto the night before she gave grand rounds in Cleveland. Someone asked her about balancing her personal and her professional life, and she stated she was able to have a successful career because her husband's job was more flexible than hers. I remember thinking, oh crap, what have we done? Knowing that my plans were to bite off this crazy combination of interventional cardiology and critical care, and that my husband was going to be an electrophysiologist, It was hard to see how either of us could have flexibility within our own careers. Fast forward now six or seven years, I'm 39 years old, attempting to maintain a high-volume interventional practice, and I've spent the last two years starting a CICU. I am married to a wonderful, very busy electrophysiologist, as you mentioned, and we now have a nine-month-old baby boy. Sometimes I wonder why so many of the most important things in life have to occupy the same time in our lives. Within a 10-year period, we're supposed to build the most important relationships of our lives, endlessly educate ourselves, take all the call, invest in our early careers, research, publish, procreate, and then raise the family. It's hard to see how the math adds up, and most days I find these tasks to be very overwhelming. I wish I had some real wisdom here, but all I have are some mediocre thoughts. For a two-physician household with a young family, Time is our most precious commodity. So here's some of what I think. First, learn to prioritize. There is no better time than now to learn to advocate for yourself and your priorities. I'm not saying lean out. I'm saying lean in. Lean in in big ways, but only to the things you are passionate about. As a resident, fellow, and early career staff, there are limitless opportunities for your time. While some people tell you to say yes to everything, 
my suggestion would be that you only lean into those things that actively advance your career, those things that help you develop a skill set that you expect to utilize in the future, or the things that provide you enjoyment. For me, this means saying no to lectures or book chapters that don't meet these criteria. Ultimately, don't let the unimportant get in the way of the important. Don't feel bad about this either. You just need to learn to change your verbiage. You don't have to say, no, my plate is too full right now and sound like you're admitting defeat. Instead, your response can be, I really appreciate this opportunity, but I have two ongoing research projects that require my full attention right now. Second, you really cannot do it all. Rely on your family and your friends and build a village to help support your family. If your resources allow, which hopefully at some point they will, outsource all of the things that do not require your direct attention. And again, don't feel bad for this. Third, support your friends and colleagues. In hindsight, one of the things I regret the most is all of the missed opportunities I had to help my co-residents and co-fellows during this time in their life. Honestly, I had no idea how hard it could be. It's sort of like intern year. You don't know how consuming it is until you go through it. In hindsight, I should have made a meal, or at least I should have had one delivered, taken a few extra hours of call, or offered to babysit for a couple hours on a Saturday so my friends could have had a little time for themselves. I wish I had the magic recipe for success, but these thoughts really are about as good as it gets right now. Should anyone ever want to commiserate or need a sounding board, I'm here. Please feel free to reach out to me. Dr. Gage, all of what you said is so important for all of us trainees to hear. And I think it's so interesting that what you think of as, you know, your sort of quote-unquote mediocre thoughts, I find is your expertise in, in as much as the expertise you've given us today on ECMO. So I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk about it because we don't talk about it enough and it's, it's really important. And I have to say, as a myself as a woman entering the field of interventional cardiology, I learned recently and was very surprised to learn that only 5% of interventional cardiologists are women. So I'm curious, before we let you go, if you don't mind speaking about how you think we can get more women and more diversity in general in the field of interventional cardiology, especially, but also of critical care cardiology, especially as as you've created this new path, and, it, and it's a path that so many are interested in following. Well, Megan, you're uh, joining a group of people that has very few participants that look like you, right? There are very few women in this field, as you noted. And I think maybe it just takes a critical mass of us so that trainees below us can look up and say, hey, there are women here and they can do this and so can I. In all honesty, I'm not sure that I have helped women out prior to maybe some of this discussion. I spent most of my career so far trying to avoid my gender. I never wanted gender to be a part of the discussion of me as a cardiologist, as an interventional cardiologist, or as a critical care provider. And being pregnant was the first time I really felt like I had to say, oh, well, I'm a woman and I can't avoid that anymore in this situation. And so 
maybe it really is just having a more honest conversation and acknowledging some of the challenges that we will face as women trying to enter into these demanding subspecialties. I think one of the things for people listening who are women, I started wearing a radiation safety badge, a fetal safety badge, two or three years prior to when I decided to actually start to try to have a family. And part of the reason for this was because I was concerned that the cath lab techs would be the very first people to learn that I was pregnant, perhaps before my husband, perhaps before my own family. So as a general fellow, I began to wear this badge. I think you have to actually declare pregnancy. So I have been declared pregnant for years, despite that that's not a true statement. But There are certain things that women have to think about in their day-to-day practice that our male counterparts never will have to. And so that sometimes can be a burden, but there are a lot of us who have been doing this. We can help other women navigate some of those things. And if you're going into this field and you don't want the cath lab staff to know the moment you're pregnant, then one of the small ways I've, uh, I've determined to do that is just to always wear a fetal radiation badge. I think that for Anyone looking to specialize in interventional cardiology and pair that with cardiac critical care, there has to be an acknowledgement that this may not be the best lifestyle choice. They're both high acuity care subspecialties, and there isn't a lot of time for a slower clinic day when those are your your two interests. So I guess I would say you should be aware of the challenges that your professional decisions will place on your life, but that there are people who have done this before us and there are ways to make these subspecialty choices work for you. For me, I'm really, really passionate about this niche, this niche of interventional cardiology and cardiac critical care. And that makes the days when I'm really tired uh, a little bit easier. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, Megan, that I should, in your question that I didn't really address this there. Amazing. <laughs> no, now, this could be like, this could be hours of, of, of conversation. Dr. Gage, thank you for all of the advice that you just gave to, on behalf of myself, and I know so many other fellows who are listening. It sounds like when I start Interventional Fellowship July 1, I will be declared pregnancy as well. I think that's a really smart piece of advice. I'm just very thankful that Cardio Nerds has allowed me to connect with you. It's really what this this Cardio Nerds group uh, and community is all about. Thank you guys for this opportunity today. This has been one of the most enjoyable things I've done in a really long time. And again, I'm just so grateful for what you've done for education across all levels of the spectrum. And I plan to continue to learn from the work that you're doing for years to come. Thank you, Dr. Gage. And I, I can't say enough how thankful we are to have you here. This has been such an incredible conversation and an important one. And as you said, you have a very busy life with uh, a lot of things going on and, and you chose to come on to this podcast. So we, we really, really appreciate it. I also want to thank my amazing co-fellow Megan for joining and getting this script together and for her contributions. This has been an awesome conversation.